Fire the Hole Podcast presents Montreal Comic Con. Uh, so, Marco, Rudy, how's it going? It's fine. How are you guys? We're doing good. I mean, we're just getting started, really. I know that things are in full swing over here, but uh, uh, how does it feel? Did you come last year? Uh, yeah, I, I do the show pretty much every year. Okay. Does it feel... Uh, I don't know about you, it feels like it's bigger this time. Yes, a bit more crowded, absolutely, yes. Um, so, uh, were you? did you get the table you wanted? Are you happy with your location? Uh, pretty much all the time. I got... Good. I'm very well treated here, so it's fine. Yeah. Did you get a reaction to your uh, to your cover, to your cloud, uh, like your art that you did for the official poster? Oh yes, people. Um, a lot of people notice it after they see the the, the thing uh, um, here, like the print here. Uh, like, oh, you're the person that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm the, from from the. Um, the subway. I'm like, yes, yes, exactly. From the the metro stations. Yeah, I mean that that that's that's the interesting thing is like inadvertently you were the best advertised of all the artists here. Pretty much, they should have posted on on the poster, drawn by person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like that. You that you you would have had to pay like hundreds of thousands of dollars to get that kind of citywide coverage. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So uh, apart from you know obviously chatting with the other artists, like, is there anyone here that you personally wanted to meet? Uh, I wanted to talk to Larry Hammer. I talked to him a little bit, and uh, if I can find, uh, I don't know, I'm gonna sneak out, try to find Danny Trejo in the uh, washroom. <laughs> that's where you would want to run into him, or not? I'm not sure. Maybe that's the worst case scenario or the best case scenario. Yeah, because it's probably the only time that I can talk to him. So what would you? What do you want to ask Danny Trejo? Because his history, his story of story of life is fucking amazing. So I would want to. Just talk to him a little more about that because it's very inspiring. Okay. Yeah. So he's he's kind of like a success story, wrapped in the, into a like hardship story, wrapped into a like unlikely hero. Absolutely. Like from the from the worst situation to the best, from being in prison to being in Hollywood. Yeah, I guess that would that would that would definitely be the worst place to start. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's pretty cool. What about the other artists? Is there anyone else here that uh, like you haven't seen before? Um, I, I hadn't seen before the, the Don Rosa. I, I, I never, didn't even think that he was alive, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's one of the best things about cons in general. Like it's just hap- I just happened to sit beside him. That was super cool. Well, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. All right. So Montreal Comic Con, and now we're talking to Mr. Andy Belanger. Hi. How are you guys? We're doing great, Andy. Uh, we were supposed to catch up to you the other day uh, for the pre-hype episode. But uh, as you, we've documented, you've had some car trouble? Yeah, I got stranded out in the eastern townships. My Honda uh, blew a cylinder in the engine, and uh, so we scrapped it. But now I'm driving a sweet new TJ. Okay, well, that's, you know, there's an upside. There's a sunny side to the story. Uh, did you actually know what was wrong with your vehicle? Uh, I knew it was the engine for sure. Generally, if it's not rolling. Yeah, there was like no power, then there was power, then it was kind of like coughing, and you're like, that's... You know it's the death rows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when you feel it that major, it's, it's like, it's not the exhaust, it's not the clutch, it was the engine. Definitely the engine. So, how many Comic-Cons is this for you? In my life? Yeah. I don't know. I got to be somewhere around five or 600, 700. I don't know. Okay, so you've done a, a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah? And do you, you, you clearly like doing them. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the, biz- the business, right? Uh, visible for the fans, be here for the fans. 
and I get to see my friends that, I, that don't live in town. So it's, you know, Montreal's always been an awesome place for comics. But for me, it's the artists. There's always like fantastic artists at this show. Um, and this year particularly is really cool because it's a lot of my really close friends like Carl, Yannick, uh, Mike Cho, um, Nick Bradshaw. Yeah, it's my posse, Kerry Nord. This is my posse. This is another thing that's quintessentially Montreal, right? Is if you just like, not with enough introductions, you tie everyone. It's like a video game, sandbox video game. Fog of War pushes back and you figure out you accidentally know eight other people that know. Oh, yeah, I love that about Montreal. There's a, a stronger sense of community here. I lived in Toronto for years, and it's very uh, like tight-knit. Like in, uh, in Toronto, if you make comics, you hang out with comic book people. But in Montreal, I'll hang out with chefs and actors and musicians, and the whole thing is way more connected and a lot more interesting as far as culture goes. Yeah, yeah and great, good nightlife too, I guess. Nightlife. The nightlife here is awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's like, uh, yeah, it's it's more laid back and stuff. You can talk to each other, hear each other talk. I guess. Oh yeah, 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 completely. Uh, just communication here is 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 great. Okay, so just speaking of which, so uh, let's let's move toward towards your work actually. Uh, what did you bring? Did you bring anything special this time around? Um, well, I'm working on a, a bunch of projects at, at uh, the moment. I was working for Ubisoft all year um, with some Far Cry stuff and. Uh, I have some Southern Cross here from Image Comics that I'm working on. Uh, I have a secret project I'm working on, but I have a whole bunch of new prints available. And I'm seeing some synthwave retro type stuff going on. Yeah, that's kind of the work I do at Ubisoft. Is very sort of like uh, retro 80s synthwave sort of music. I animated, yeah, I animated the trailer for Blood Dragon. I was gonna say you must have been involved with Blood Dragon. By the way, amazing. Yeah, I was the principal animator on that. Um, yeah, and it was, it's, uh, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that I do in Southern Cross is very sort of like retro 80s synthwave. That's amazing. I literally discovered synthwave like a year ago, and I'm mostly a metalhead, but it's like somehow it goes together. I don't know why. Yeah, it really does. I think it's, it's, the, it's just the sound sort of like fits together. Uh, I'm the same way. I'm a huge metalhead. And uh, when I did Blood Dragon, um, I think it was Power Glove did the soundtrack, and then right after that, tons of synthwave creators were coming at me. Uh, on asking for art? Asking for art, yeah. I've done a bunch of uh, Mega Drive covers. Uh, you know, I, I met like, uh, you know, guys like Laser, Laserhawk and some other stuff. So, uh, you know, you get to start meeting these people and it's, it's, it's super cool. I just bought a, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but a new album by Judge Bitch came out this week. Yes, I did. And, uh, I'm freaking out over that album. It's, it's awesome. I'm all over it. Yeah. Uh, uh, animals, I think it's like animals uh, with weapons or something like that. I'm, I'm like so in love with that track and Trash Pandas is amazing. I like, yeah, for what I do, the kind of art I make, I love having it on in the background when I work. Um, it fits together really, really nicely. So, uh, yeah, I'm really pumped on that album. It's So... Is there some sort of Blood Dragon Part 2 possibly happening? Well, they did a Blood Dragon Part 2 that was like a, a motocross game. Um, and as far as I know, that's it. Like, uh, as far as that... But the reception was good. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Synthway's not going away, I think. No, Synthway's not going away. People are, are digging it, so it, it's going to stick around. So, yeah, uh, we're here with... Uh, with it's Keon, right? Yeah, Keon, yeah. Keon, yeah. Yeah, it's your first time here in Montreal Comic Con, I believe, right? Well, I was there in uh, 1992, okay. uh, but I have 
I don't remember much about it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you were sort of the uh, part of that whole uh, image '90s yeah, one of sort of the, generation. Uh, part of the Exodus. And you went on and you did uh, Pit. Leaving the Hulk, and then I went on. And I created my own character called Pit. Uh, thanks. To, uh, well, Jim Lee was the guy who actually. Uh, so many different. Uh, what what I actually wanted to do back in uh, is because I was really uh, I sort of I was sort of obsessed obsessed with pit bulls, the dog. Right. What if I created a character that's sort of like a version, like a humanoid version of, of a pit bull, like really tough. But I said I'll just I'll exaggerate that. So he's like uh, well he's obviously an alien, so very hard to kill. Uh, so there was some Hulk influence. There was some Wolverine influence. Pitbull influence, and there was also some Lobo influence, because I really liked all the detail that Simon Bisley would put in the drawing. So, the first book was actually uh, when they scanned the line art, it didn't really work because it was too much, uh, too much uh, detail. So when they scanned it, it all kind of fell apart. What's weird about that is a lot of people like that. So I was, I, I thought I wasn't being clean enough, but all of a sudden people, yeah, they kind of like that rough look. So. I'll, and I have never been able to reproduce it because the uh, scanning's better now. You know, I, I'm not a, I can, I've worked with writers, so I know I'm not a writer. <laughs> That's proof of it. Uh, like Peter David's a writer. And I've worked with Steve Gerber, who's a writer. Um, and lots of other writers. Uh, Jeff Loeb, a great writer. Um, so I, I, I'm basically just sort of emphasizing my strengths, which is like all of the action, you know? It's like watching a, 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 a big action movie, you know? But if I had another writer, I'd probably go a little bit more cerebral. But I don't know if I'm capable of that. Will we see Pitt again at some point? Oh, that is a, the uh, $60,000 question. Uh, you never know. Um, there's, there's some talks in uh, bringing Pitt back in some capacity. But nothing really fleshed out at this point. But I'm telling you, I would love to do him again. Your notoriety came from working on Incredible Hulk for how many years was that? That was probably three I want to say three it might have been more might have been less <laughs> yeah and uh, the whole Hulk thing that was sort of like you, you sort of did it did you feel you sort of pigeonholed you into doing the big guys all the time or is it something you just love to do I guess uh, there's a certain amount of pigeonholing but um, I don't mind it it's harder for me to capture like to, to draw real people obviously because a lot of artists say you're when you draw a monster you really have nothing to compare it to you know, unless you're trying to like draw a perfect version of Godzilla, and then people will notice if it's, if it's different. But uh, yeah, with human beings, it's uh, you know, there's so many artists here that draw just people so good. It's real. I just go, I'm gonna do my best and hope for the best. You did a great issue story arc with Doctor Strange and Namor. Yeah, yeah, that was like early on, right? That was the Gray Hulk. I've got to do in one one series with the Gray Hulk, then the Green Hulk, and then Professor Hulk. Which I, I kind of helped uh, design. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, when Peter, Peter David presented you with that Professor Hulk idea, um, so he let you completely... No, basically, um, at the time, John Romita was their, their art. Oh, okay. And he sort of gave me some... Uh, he kind of drew up a mock-up a mock of what the Hulk should look like, uh, 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 sort of what the Professor Hulk should look like, and I took that and I did my own version of it. John, John Romita Sr. was a big help in sort of giving me pointers, like he would pass them through the editor and he would give me pointers on how to draw a certain thing, because you know, the, the, he knows. If anybody knows, John Romita Sr. knows. Yeah. 
Um, and we sort of um, we chatted about this over the weekend. Uh, there's possibly a little hint of that maybe happening in the MCU. That's right. Yeah. YouTube, there's a lot of theories about Professor Hall, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, have people come up to you often asking you, if this is, is this going to happen? No, I had to bring it up. Okay. <laughs> the thing is, I'm probably spreading a, a rumor that's wrong. It's probably just <laughs> those things they're throwing out there to, to throw people off. Yeah. You never know. But it makes sense that it would be the Professor Hall. I think we would love to see it. Yeah. Well, because they had a, mini a miniature, in the movie, they had a miniature version of what Peter and I did, where he's, he's fighting with himself. You don't know which Hulk wants to be in charge, and the whole hypnosis thing, and then Dr. Samson, and then they're doing that inside the Hulkbuster armor. Yeah, yeah. Like little versions of that, you know? And I even sort of loved back in the day when you had him in his like lab coat, and he had like a slick yeah. back hair. Yeah, that was like, those pages were just like, yeah, that was that's a really that's a really weird look for him. It's just so cool having like a big, huge dude like that, like doing yeah. science. I just figured Professor Hulk would probably have some kind of product in his hair. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> maybe some gel. <laughs> Savage Hulk yeah, doesn't sure. care anything about his hair. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Professor Hulk would care. Yeah. Uh, who were some of your artistic influences growing up? Oh my God. When I was younger, Herb Trimpey. That was the Hulks. I had a whole stack of Herb Trimpey Hulks and they didn't have covers on them because they were returnable. So we'd dumpster dive and I'd get, I have a lot of those books and I'm still, once when I see the actual cover now, I'm like, oh, so that's what the cover looked like. Cause I had, but, and then of course, when I actually started buying comic books was uh, Sel Buscema and Joe Statton. Joe Statton is amazing. You know what Joe Statton did? He actually, I had mentioned I loved those issues and he somehow found my address and sent me one of the pages, the ink pages from uh, Hulk 201, I think. Amazing. He didn't have to. He just did that because he knew I, I was. I liked his inking. I liked Sal Buscema. Sal Buscema and Joe Joe Staten was the inker. Phenomenal. Joe Staten had that page and he said, Yeah, yeah. I still have it. It's uh, my cherished possession. Wow. <laughs> and there's and some of the others. Oh, okay. Uh, Sal Buscema, and then of course. Uh, well, there's a couple of other artists in there, but because I collected so much of Sal Buscema's hulks. And then I guess later on, uh, I kind of, I didn't really collect anymore. I was a musician, I played music. And then one day, I think I was even on the road and we had like a little break. I went into a store and I saw John Byrne's Fantastic Four. I can't remember what issue it was. He'd been, it'd be, he'd been doing it for about a year. And I went, I was like in the store, getting like a drink or something. I looked over and what? <laughs> I had to pick it up. And then I started collecting again. John Byrne's Fantastic Four. Uh, uh, John Buscema's, he was, and then he eventually did like some a bunch of Avengers. Oh, so good. I think uh, everybody, John Byrne's whole, uh, Fantastic Four. Yeah, I, re I really haven't stopped since, you know? Yeah, that yeah, was it. Yeah. And then I've, I started drawing more because of it. I believe I've seen you do some really awesome Superman stuff too. Like, I don't... I'm not really that happy with my Superman. Um, I was trying to make it look like uh, Ed McGuinness. Almost a subconscious thing. Yeah. And I thought, why? I just do it, do it the way I did. Just draw it the way I draw it. But it was too late. I already finished it. <laughs> Suppose we should bring it up. We just lost Steve Ditko. Um, well, 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 how was his impact on you? Uh, well, I mean, or did all he? of the like, Golden Age guys had an impact. I mean, but it wasn't until uh, later I started discovering guys like Ditko and uh, Kirby, you know, guys. And I really started, because I, I wasn't really collecting comic books in the 60s. 
But later on I discovered how amazing those guys are. You know, how much work they do, how great, how consistent it was. So I respect those guys so much, you know. They do so, did so much work, than, more work than I've ever done. You mentioned you were into music and stuff like that. How has music sort of blended into your art or has it? Well, I mean, it's a lot of times when I draw, it's, I have music on, like heavier, heavy metal music. And also sort of like, well, like, like, like uh, Mudvayne and, uh, you know, bands like that. Um, so I usually have, not all the time, sometimes I'll just have a podcast on in the background. Um, but usually I, I love music. Have you, I, I like soundtrack. There's a, I found, on YouTube I found the uh, Blade Runner soundtrack, the new one. It's pretty good. That's a the, really the, good get, eh? It is. It's a really good soundtrack. Also, uh, 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 yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that, uh, like soundtracks. That when you're drawing, it's almost like you're, working, you're making a movie because the yeah. soundtrack's in the background. Uh, Are you familiar with the Synthwave? Synthwave? Like I work on Synthwave all the time. I don't know. There's different types. There's like heavier types. There's lighter types. There's more Miami sound. But I find that, especially a guy who's pushing 40, like it, it's enough of the old days, right? And it's enough, neutral enough that it like lyrics, I don't know for you, do lyrics interfere with your work? Like if you hear somebody singing, does that bother you? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, I don't care because I'm not really focusing on it. It's just like background mood music, heavy trashy <laughs> that would make sense with like a I'm, I'm like picturing you listening to like i don't know like a slipknot and doing like a pit panel or something yeah wow <laughs> i have <laughs> cool so uh we're here with with nick spencer from the world of comics uh mostly marvel comics for the sure. last quite a few years yeah. thanks and, thanks for uh, having me I mean, basically, you uh, crafted probably one of the most controversial Captain America <laughs> story arcs. That's definitely true. Yeah, definitely. Um, how was that entire experience for you, man? Well, it was, you know, it was an interesting experience for yeah. sure. Um, I, I wasn't surprised in a lot right. of ways. We we knew uh, when. Just so we're clear, it's the. Um, <laughs> yeah, we used to tell folks. The, the, yeah, the 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 famous uh, Steve Rogers uh, storyline where he. Became uh, an Hail agent Hydra. of Hydra. Yeah, the big Hail Hydra moment. Yeah, uh, and uh, the classic Hail Hydra moment that was <laughs> all over everywhere. There's like a thousand yeah. memes, and I think I saw like everything from Ronald McDonald to like Colonel Saunders. One of my proudest moments. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but I mean, it was different. It was something that. That. It got people talking. It got people excited. That's, yeah. that's part of our job. You know, when you do something like that, that people are going to get upset. Yeah. Uh, you know, people care about these characters. They're, right. they're very passionate about them. So uh, none of it was terribly surprising. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but ultimately, for us, uh, we know. Yeah. A. That's part of our job is right. to get people talking and get people excited about the stories that we're telling. Um, and B. That you know, once it's underway. It's time to execute our game plan. Time to yeah. execute the story that we that we want to tell. Um, sure. And so, it's at a certain point you kind of block that stuff out and right. and, and focus on uh, uh, you know doing what you set out to do. Yeah. So it was a you know it was a uh, uh, yeah it was certainly a unique experience in my career. Yeah. I don't know that anything will ever uh, top that. We'll see. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, it was, it was a crazy thing to be a part of. And, I mean, of. I believe they sort of toyed with Captain America going bad a few times, like, it's way a, back in the day. It's a recurring theme yeah. uh, in, in his stories that, you know, uh, some he's either brainwashed or programmed right. or, uh, you know, there's some imposter that takes over the suit. 
it, it's it's a recurring theme because Captain America as a symbol has so much power. Yeah. Um, that you know more than any other superhero really. Uh, seeing somebody else or seeing a, a corrupted version in that costume is a, a very terrifying thing. It, it right. instantly makes the story kind of a high-stakes moment. So, um, uh, so yeah, there's a reason why uh, creators on the book kind of keep revisiting that as a concept. Yeah. Uh, for me, at the same time, you putting uh, Sam Wilson in the yeah. Captain America costume, that was surprisingly one of the most refreshing things and one some of the most refreshing comics that I've read so in much. quite a long time. Um, and that comic series, specifically Sam Wilson, Captain America, dealt with so many pressing, awesome political issues. And yeah, uh, that's some of the Marvel work that I'm the most proud of, yeah. uh, really, is the Sam Wilson, Captain America book. I think that book had a lot of heart and was trying to... Uh, you know, capture a moment in time and 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 where the world was at that time, and and uh, uh, tried to you know, tried to speak to issues in a way that a Marvel superhero comic can. Right. Um, and you know, I just I love Sam so much as a character. Uh, you know, in the position that he was put in uh, as Captain America. Yeah. Kind of like it, like what what uh, what I thought would happen to to, to Sam. If yeah. we were to assume that identity, um, you know, that was a story that I was really passionate about. And what was really great about it was that the theme of the comic actually reflected what was going on in a weird way in the United States, the political climate. To an almost surreal extent at times. Yeah, almost at you a know, surreal we work, extent. We work pretty far ahead. Uh, and at times, it was it was uh, a really really strange experience to yeah. see how it lined up with, yeah. with you know. But but that's a big part of what we do at Marvel. You know, we always call it, we call it the world outside your window. We you know yeah. we want Marvel to reflect that. Uh, you know, uh, one of the big differences between Marvel and DC is you know Marvel comics are. Uh, uh, you know, set in our universe. You know right. that, they're, that, that it's New York City. And, yeah. Uh, you know that whoever's whoever's president for us is president yeah. in the Marvel yeah. universe. Yeah. Things like that. And, uh, I've always really really loved that. And, and yeah. uh, you know, we wanted to lean into that in that book. It was also yeah. a love song to. I grew up with Mark Grunwald on Captain America. Yeah. And the run was very much a, a love song to that run. Uh, and uh, trying to reconnect with with that and doing it through a little bit of a modern lens and 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 uh, uh, you know seeing how people would take that kind of book now was, was yeah was was a fascinating thing yeah yeah and I, I suppose Marvel was really behind you with with all what you were you doing and everything and they yeah, were yeah Marvel were really supportive you know right. um, uh, you know they were really excited about the story and you know certainly when I pitched. Uh, you know everything that happened with Steve. Um, you know they were very excited about that story, yeah. and that's that's something that I really love about working there. Is you know they're not afraid to take big chances. Definitely, they're not afraid of of you know internet backlash or, yeah, yeah, or stuff yeah. like that. They you know uh, if they believe in a story, they 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 want to tell it and they yeah. stick to it. And I, I really admire them for that. Um, and now I'm working with Spider-Man, yeah. which is sort of a kind of a whole different. Very different Root thing. For you excited? But, you know to that was what was so yeah. so interesting about it was you know really before uh, before Cap, 
I most, you know, I think a, a lot of folks were reading my stuff, uh, you know, thought of me as a comedy writer and thought of me as, yeah. as you know, because of Superior Foes and Ant-Man and yeah. The Fix. Yeah, they, You know, they, they, they kind of thought of me as, as, you know, somebody that wrote wrote that kind of work. So, yeah. uh, so, you know, then when Cap starts, I was like the political writer. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, now I'm, I'm, you know, in a book that is certainly less political uh, and certainly has a little more comedy again, not quite as much as, as right. Spirit Foes or an Ant-Man, right. but uh, still a pretty fair I, amount. I was going to ask if you were sort of going to, with, with who's the mayor right now in the Marvel Universe in yeah, New York right. City, reminds me of somebody, I was sort of <laughs> wondering if you were going to sort of I mean, what I can say is, uh, you know, Kingpin will be a, a key part of our story, and yeah, Wilson Fisk is currently the mayor of New yeah. York, which I was so excited about Charles Soule doing that story over in Daredevil, and immediately asked, you know, if, if we could do some Spidey stuff from involving that, and, Yeah. Uh, you know, they were very gracious in, in sharing him there, and uh, yeah, and you know, I, I, I love kingpin as a character and yeah. certainly they get to do a story of, of fisk as mayor there's a lot of great yeah. story possibilities in that yeah. so I'm, I'm excited for sure man i'm really excited uh and obviously ryan otley must be amazing to work with uh you know i'm just over the moon to be working with ryan he's such a phenomenal artist a gifted storyteller he's also a very nice guy and a great yeah. collaborator so we are having so much fun on the book together yeah so, uh, Montreal Comic Con, we have uh, Mr. Jerry Conway with us. Uh, tremendous honor for us. Um, I'm really trying to restrain the, the fanboy in me. Um, <laughs> I, and I, do, I say what I always say to someone I meet that I really admire, and, I, and that's that you know, your work has been a, a huge impact. Well, that, that's very gratifying to hear. You um, know. I think to a lot of people, I, I described it like, I actually wrote down the questions here. I hope you'll forgive me no, no. Uh, if I read from them. And I said, you know, you're writing has basically been like a Pink Floyd record playing in the background of our childhoods, wow. teenage years, challenging us, inspiring us, making us laugh, exhilarating, exhilarating us through the decades. Uh, G.I. Joe, Conan, Spider-Man, Perry Mason, which I, I remember as a, as a child watching. Wow. <laughs> um, and so much more. So as a storyteller, uh, do you see any kind of pattern or unifying themes to your work? Uh, I think... Uh, that's a hard question for me to answer, but you know, I, th I think there are th stories that I keep coming back to, uh, and mostly those are stories about discovering personal, uh, dealing with personal guilt, dealing with personal uh, uh, grief. You know, uh, trying to uh, uh, answer the internal questions that that haunt you. You know. Okay. Uh, but I, I don't. It's I'm self-conscious about it enough so that I'm not that aware. Right. I mean, and you don't want to be too aware either, right? right? right. Because then uh, there's the uh, the fear of self-parody and yeah. such things. Yeah. Which I'm very good at. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, and writing is something that's. I mean, you you've written for how many years now? If you, if you have to think about. Uh, fifty years professionally this year. Okay, so yeah, that's easy to remember because it was June. I think it was June. No, I th I think I sold my first story to uh, uh, DC Comics, uh, uh, to uh, Murray Boltonoff for Tales of the Unexpected uh, in August of 1968. So, Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's going to be 50 years in a couple of months. That's great. That's just 10 years before I was born. Uh, <laughs> and I'm usually, I'm usually the oldest guy in the room, so that feels great. I feel like a kid again <laughs> just for a little while. That's great. So um, of all the characters in the com comics that you have create, I mean, obviously the uh, the Punisher is now more popular than ever with the successful run on Netflix. 
the Punisher's roots have been traced back to uh, Mac Bolin for the ex- execution novels. Uh, John Rambo, uh, maybe a little par- Paul Kersey from Death Wish. I don't know if you would see those elements in there. Um, and and uh, let's not forget Dirty Harry. Dirty uh, Harry, I was going to yeah, mention. Yeah. Harry Callahan, definitely. Yeah, uh, definitely. There's a piece I of mean, him there. Th- that was part of the zeitgeist at the time. Uh, it, I mean, characters like Boland uh, and the Executioner uh, are similar to the pulp characters of uh, the, the 30s, you know, like... Uh, uh, the Shadow and uh, the Phantom Detective, you know, and various vigilantes. Uh, and we hadn't really, I mean, it, while Batman was a kind of a, a vigilante character and all the superheroes are vigilante characters, we had not really done a character that was uh, pure uh, uh, cl- classic street vigilante type. Right. Uh, and yeah, those, those characters like Callahan and Executioner and... Uh, uh, Rambo were were certainly uh, part of that zeitgeist. Yeah, initially, yeah. I mean, maybe I'm off here, but uh, Punisher specifically always seemed to me like it was at once uh, kind of uh, an indictment of, of war and the follies of war, uh, while also catering to that sort of eternally present uh, secret fantasy for, for sure. vigilante justice that, sure. that's always been present. And and the the, the trap in that uh, is is that uh, I mean as I always try to remi- remind people is that the Punisher is uh, uh, the bad guy in the first right. appearance uh, and uh, his desire f- uh, to quote clean the streets and to take care of the bad guys uh, is actually uh, manipulated by an even worse bad guy which is the Jackal. Uh, it's only when he realizes that he's been manipulated that he uh, turns away from trying to kill our, our protagonist. Uh-huh. So uh, my feeling at the time was that this, mo- that this, this need for a vigilante, this, this desire for a vigilante, uh, was a double-edged sword. And that's what I wanted to uh, express. You know, to I explore mean, that. Yeah. And, and uh, to, to varying degrees, that message has been... Uh, emphasized or, or de-emphasized over the decades since. Right. I mean, it, it, uh, that's kind of the big question, you know, is that you create it for one reason in the social context at times, and then what does he become? He's still relevant for the same reasons we don't know. I mean, war right. certainly hasn't gone anywhere. No, no. Uh, justice, I mean, maybe New York isn't as seedy and right. <laughs> as it used to be. Yeah, it's the the you don't need a Punisher today. Right. <laughs> uh, the character Firestorm uh, was actually the reason I personally picked up a DC comic for the first time because I was caught in this foolish Marvel versus DC thing when I was a kid. I thought I had to pick a side. Right. Everybody, everybody is in that at one point or another. Right. We had the Sega Nintendo. We had the Marvel versus... Right. right? So, but he, of course, the fact that he had fire for hair was the first thing that caught my eye. But very quickly, um, uh, so I grew up with a father and the, uh, the, the very unique duality uh, of Ronnie and Martin Stein mm-hmm. uh, it kind of, I don't know. I saw this bonding experience between a, p- a father figure and a, and yes. a youth. From my, was, was that was that there or did yes, I? Yes, yeah. That, uh, I, I mean, the, a, lo- a lot of what creators do is is uh, subconscious, you know, and, and we're all tapping into an archetype of some kind or other that we're trying to uh, that we use to reflect whatever internal drama we're we're trying to portray. But uh, I, I knew f- when I start when I when I was putting that book together, when I was creating that character, I knew that I wanted a couple of elements, and that l- then led to the dynamic that you're describing. Uh, I wanted a a, a uh, young hero who wasn't 
a Peter Parker. You know, wasn't the bright kid, wasn't the uh, the, the smartest kid in his class, uh, wasn't a natural hero, but was you know kind of a an ordinary guy who would probably be be overwhelmed in any given situation, uh, make bad choices, and you know be kind of foolish. Uh, but at the same time, he had to act heroically. Uh, I wanted to have this this mentoring aspect of it, uh, which would allow me to to have that dialogue, uh, and then that in itself, you know, provided that dynamic that you're now describing, which is the father-son uh, relationship. And I realized, not when I was doing it, but, but in reflection, that it's an archetype, which is the, uh, the voice inside any adolescent that is uh, the voice of their parents, the voice of mature society, trying to tell them what to do, you know, and the struggle between that childish impulse to do what I want to do no matter what and the uh, more mature part of your your mind that's saying well maybe that's not a good idea right and it, it it was a happy accident but it but I think it really did reflect a a fundamental archetype that uh, people responded to I, I think so definitely and, and and they kind of both had something to contribute right oh, yeah, Ronnie absolutely. had the brashness the, yeah. the courage yeah and they couldn't do it neither one of them could do it without the other which as is we also, learn later yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. important. Okay. Uh, my final question is, uh, Alan Moore, uh, Alan Moore. Yes, uh, has often been quoted uh, as saying that adaptations are mostly unnecessary or they're somewhat uh, corrupt as a practice. He considers them a bit of a cynical uh, sort of cash grab that it, it, every story should remain in its original format. At least that's been that's been repeated here and now. now well, as you a should person, tell that to William Shakespeare. To William Shakespeare, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who is the ultimate adapter? There yeah. you go. <laughs> exactly, and we're all adapting in some fashion, yeah. of course. Yeah. But as a person whose works and ideas have been adapted and continually are adapted uh, over the over the decades, uh, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about adaptation? Oh, I'm flattered by it. I mean, I I, I, I don't I don't hold that an adaptation has anything to do necessarily with the work that inspired it. I mean, in, in many cases, what you're seeing is uh, an interpretation, you know, of, of material that already exists. There's a great story that's uh, uh, credited to uh, James Cain, who wrote uh, the novel Double Indemnity, that became, you know, a, f a fairly famous film noir. Uh, and uh, Cain was asked at one point, what do you think about what Hollywood has done to your novels? And he said, well, they haven't done anything to my novels. They're right over there on the <laughs> right. shelf. You know, the, 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 the adaptation is a separate thing. Uh, it's, it's, uh, to me, it's, a, it's, it's an acknowledgement that you created something that was worthy of, of, of interpretation and imitation. And that's flattering. So I'm, I'm always happy to see it. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Uh, cosplay would maybe also uh, yeah, absolutely. be part yeah. of that. It's, yeah. it's definitely... It's a, it's a tribute. You know, I, yeah. I think, you know, yeah, uh, obviously uh, there, there is cash involved because we are... There, but there was cash involved in the original creation. Right. <laughs> yeah, know, I mean, we I live mean, in a capitalist nobody, system. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody writes and creates a comic book for free, <laughs> you know. So uh, if you're willing to have been paid for your work in the first place, why should you... You know, be offended that somebody else wants to be paid for your work in a second place. Well, <laughs> I don't get it. I'm really glad to hear you say these things about the way you feel about adaptation because that's primarily how uh, the reason I wanted to say hello to you personally is because a few years back we did a, a fan film on Punisher 
uh, that uh, John Bernthal also ended up seeing way before when he was preparing for his role. And you even were nice enough to reach out to us and say hello. And yeah, to, to, yeah. To, to, we really appreciate that, by the way. Yeah, I mean, personally, just as somebody that I want to eventually write comics and get into that industry, do you have any sort of like insight or tips as to... Well, I can't speak specifically to the, the industry as it is today because I, I, I right. haven't broken into it. You know what right. I mean? I, I work in it, but I've already established myself, so I don't have yeah. that insight. But I will say this, that uh, creating anything is, is something that you decide to do. And whether it gets published or not is irrelevant. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's irrelevant financially. I mean, it's obviously financially relevant. Yeah. Uh, but from a creative point of view, wanting to do something and then executing it and making it happen yeah. is up to you. Mm-hmm. And whether someone else appreciates it, mm-hmm. you know, as I, as I mentioned uh, on the panel, uh, I did not feel appreciated as a, as a comic book creator uh, mm-hmm. until you know, almost seriously until about 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, I still did it. You know, and I, I pushed and wanted to do it for my own personal reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there were financial reasons, but there were also, you know, creative and emotional reasons that, that drove me to do it. And I would mm-hmm. say if you have the passion to create something and you put that passion into the work, mm-hmm. ultimately that should be its own reward. But that passion can then, will then inspire other things to happen. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer in what I call stirring the pot. Mm-hmm. which is nothing happens unless you're stirring the pot. And uh, you, you do stuff and you create stuff and you put stuff out there and eventually it gets found, discovered, uh, and develops a, a life of its own. Yeah. Uh, my wife's uh, someone who I deeply admire because about six or seven or eight years ago, uh, before I met her, uh, she had been a, a working as an accountant uh, for most of her adult life and uh, through some, I don't know how it, how it happened or why she did it, she started doing a web series uh, that she wrote with someone else directing. Uh, and uh, over the last five, six years, uh, they've, they've got 40,000 subscribers and four or five million views on this web series. Wow. Yeah. And, and she has fans, people writing in, you know, uh, uh, talking, you know, commenting and all so of it. Do you this. mind if we ask what it's called? It's mm-hmm. called uh, uh, The Vamps Next Door. It's, okay. uh, it's a very hokey, very funny uh, uh, sitcom-y type show about vampires living in suburbia. Uh, and, it, you know, it starts out very ragged you know, yes. <laughs> with not very much skill sets involved but you know by the time sh- it's it's reached its uh, current form it, it is really well developed and this is something where she just she had always wanted to do it she had always wanted to be creative but she hadn't allowed herself to be and once she allowed herself to be you know it flowers and it grows and it takes on a life of its own so mm-hmm. everybody should just do what you want to it's, do. It's know. a path. Yeah, yeah, it's a path. There's no guarantee that, 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 that at the end of it there's going to be a, 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 a success, mm. but that's not relevant. The relevant yeah. part is doing what you want to do. Right. You know, Ultimately, that's the only thing you have power over. That's, but, that's phenomenal. And that's a lot of power. Um, obviously, you're still writing to this day. Yeah. And uh, what, how has your process changed 
over the years. I'm much more careful. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think things through probably more than I did. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I was working in comics in the 70s uh, and 80s, uh, I was making a living doing it, and I had to write a lot in order to make a living. So I didn't have the time to process... Uh, fully my intentions on on books i was working from issue to issue sometime month to month developing stories as as i went along and planning things out was not my strong suit so these days i I plan things out much more yeah that's awesome thank you very much thank you thanks for the conversation great